You're on Radio 1, 91 FM, Politrix. We are joined in the studio now by our special guest, John Sinar, Ph.D. candidate uh, for the Otago Politics Department. Uh, he comes from Turkey, and he studied the Iranian Revolution uh, as part of his master's, and now for his Ph.D., uh, he is studying things related to the global financial crisis. So um, all of those topics are things that touch on things that we're very interested in here at Politrix. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio, John. How are you doing? Oh, thank you very much, first of all, for having me on the show. I'm, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm great. And uh, I was flattered to hear that someone actually listens to the show, um, let alone wanted to come participate um but yeah tell us i guess maybe we could start right off with uh you know the recent events in turkey uh you're from turkey mm -hmm. uh you're an you know an an academic now i guess we can call you or soon you'll be a turkish academic um Hopefully. there's stuff happening to them these days yeah. um depending what side you're on but uh yeah what what are your sort of um you know what were your first thoughts uh on the most recent coup? Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm perplexed. I, I'm still reading on the topic. I can't understand what exactly happened or how it happened. Uh, so uh, every, everything I can say at the moment, anything I can say is just uh, speculations and from my perspective. Uh, first of all, I didn't know even the, the whole um, Gulen movement was this strong. Mm -hmm. It is interesting because I am from the country and I've been studying or interested in politics for a long time. And yet I didn't know that they had held this much power. Apparently, uh, most of the military, over 90%, some people say, belong to this movement. Uh, many academicians, high-ranking politicians. Uh, this, this is, I, I don't know if there's any other cult or, or movement that was this strong in a modern state. And, and is it pretty widely accepted now that it was a genuine Gulenist coup attempt? Well, um, I actually talked about this in Radio 1 <laughs> last week, but, but uh, I, the people you see on the streets during the coup, the soldiers, we can't say all of them, or even most of them were actually Gulen's, Gulenists. Yeah. Most of them were soldiers, simple soldiers following orders. They so thought it was like an exercise or something, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, a military yeah, exercise. Yeah. Most of them were told it's just an exercise. So they said, go there and stop there and hold the rifle. And they did that. You don't have, you, when we're talking about an army that's as brutally efficient as the Turkish military, it is not a, a, an amateur job, okay? So if, if they tell you to do something, you do it perfectly. And remember, this, this army successfully did coups mm. um, four times in the last 40 years, six years. And yeah, they, they were again efficient, effective, and people woke up to a, to a new governance, new system. It wasn't something you can go to the streets and, and stop it. It was something that happens. You don't have a say in it. If you're, if you're talking about the second biggest army, the largest army in NATO. So the, the whole thing that there was a coup attempt and it failed, these are all incredibly weird to me, to be honest. This is a first. Yes, it's yeah. a first. And it's, it's really hard to understand. Yeah, well, it, you know, even experts like uh, Bill Harris last week saying, you know, he's, he's still perplexed about it. And um, 
it was a very confusing situation even for people who are you know dedicated to working out the country yeah now professor harris said he did not believe that there were in fact links between the gullenist uh cult or whatever you want to call it and the cia do you have any views on that um I mean, there seems to be... I, I was surprised to hear Will say that he didn't think that that was proven because it seems fairly widely accepted in most of the sources that I read. Um, you know, given the U.S.'s interest in, um, you know, the government of Turkey, them as a strategic geographical location, a member of NATO, a basing point for nuclear weapons... Um, they, you know, they obviously take an interest in Turkish politics. Erdogan and Gulen used to be best mates. That kind of led to the rise of Erdogan. Um, then when Gulen fell out of favor, uh, you know, he was allowed to go to the United States and kind of continue his, uh, you know, parallel structure there. Mm-hmm. Normally that type of thing doesn't happen without the intelligence agencies at least being aware of it. Yeah, yeah, we can obviously see that, that they were aware of the fact. And Gulen has a, a school chain of schools. So I don't know. Yeah, what that's right. In, in the, the charter US. schools. Yeah, that's charter right. Schools. So, and they they are bringing out of money to to the movement. So obviously they are aware of that. But I'm not sure if they were. But they should be aware of the coup. There's there's new um, evidence coming out, and apparently that I don't know. I'm not sure about this. This is uh, released from the media that was close to Erdogan, so we, are yeah. not, we can't be re- really sure. But apparently, uh, there were the U.S.-owned um, airplanes that's, that uh, took off from uh, a Turkey base, a yeah. base in Turkey, and uh, filled the jets that were uh, related to, to coup, that mm. were included in the coup. So they kind of helped the coup, they say. And if that's the case, this means that this was another U.S.-backed coup in Turkey. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I can see some, some uh, connection be- between CIA and Gulen, but I can't name it because that we have no... Yeah, I'm, well, I'm very that's spe- the nature of I'm the very <laughs> spectacle about it because, um, you know, I, I, I don't see what is, is to gain there from, from inciting a coup. If it was the CIA, surely they would have known how premature or... Uh, ill-prepared mm-hmm. a coup that they were um, you know plotting would be but also the other point is that we have to be careful because this is this is the narrative the grand narrative that Erdogan is in power once yeah is, yeah yeah is that you know well he's he certainly doubling he's down it, on yeah, this idea that the CIA was involved yesterday yes. he's just said blatantly the West is supporting terrorists against the Turkish state so yeah we have to be careful, I think. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, I mean, reports after the coup were that uh, Insulik Air Base was locked down for mm. over 48 hours, yeah. and the U.S. airmen and their families were not allowed to leave. Um, bombing over Syria uh, coming out of Insulik stopped for those days, so mm-hmm. that lends some credence to that allegation. Um, now there's reports that, you know, uh, Erdogan's talking about how uh, a certain uh, military base is going to have to be closed down as part of the coup, but they don't specifically mention that it's Insulik, but it sure as hell sounds like he's talking about Insulik. This is where they host, uh, you know, the um, American nuclear deterrent capability. Yeah. Um, that that would seem a major, given that... It would seem too far, wouldn't it? Well, it would seem to be a major rift. I mean, if you know, uh, 
if Turkey still considers themselves a member of NATO, um, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. doesn't take very kindly to having their basing rights removed. That's the whole reason NATO exists. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that will happen. That can't happen. Uh, the, the relationship between Turkey and the U.S. is going back to uh, far before this whole uh, AKP and all of that, those mm. incidents. Uh, it's, uh, Turkey was one of the castles that stopped communist threats uh, in the 1950s. So um, the, the relationship is going very deep. And I don't think that can happen, that such a um, break from NATO would be changing everything. I, I can't see it happening. But I also couldn't see this coup coming. Yeah. So I don't <laughs> want to... <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing for me, and this is what I was trying to get at with Professor Harris last week, and I guess, you know, we don't, it's all very fluid and things are changing rapidly and we don't have a lot of uh, concrete information from immediately before or inside the coup. But, um, you know, to, to me, when it comes to geopolitics, if you're thinking about what's going on in Syria um, clear, or in Turkey... Clearly, there's domestic political considerations to be had. They're their own country. They've got a whole lot of stuff going on. But when Western powers take an interest, like the U.S. or Russia, um, to me, it always has to be seen through the lens of the war in Syria or or the other wars in the Middle East. And um, I guess the... uh, You know, the the only reason that... um, the U.S. is so interested in Turkey right now is because of these wars in the Middle East, the proximity to both Ukraine and to Syria, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the new Cold War, um, the U.S. versus Russia. And Obama and Putin have become really entrenched as each other's boogeymen to kind of play off each other for domestic purposes. And But there is a real, um, you know, the great game uh, has always been afoot, even in that slight blip when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, the economic powers that represented both sides kind of reorganized, and it's always still been going on. And when you see Syria, well, and Crimea for that matter, as, you know, one of the few places left in the world where, uh, you know, the, the former Soviet military machine maintains these extraterritorial bases which are so key i mean you know it may sound childish but anyone who's ever played a game of risk or um you know read about classical conflict uh extraterritorial bases is what it's all about um so the idea that you know the last two of these belonging to russia could be closed down overnight by a political change in ukraine and a political change in syria um, to me, is the obvious reason why you know Putin would be taking an interest, and um, you know, let's put aside any protestations about minority groups or human rights or territorial sovereignty. Uh, to me, it's all about the bases. And if um, you know Syria, if you look through Syria in that lens, and you look at the shifting alliances, uh, both for Assad and anti-Assad. The, the fact that just before the coup, that Turkey um, seemed to have essentially cut their losses and apologized to Russia for shooting down the aircraft over the Hatay province um, and basically, you know, signaled this rapprochement that Russia would not be agreeing to unless it meant totally cutting off ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um totally cutting off those other moderate proxy armies uh, in the north of Syria threatening the Assad regime. Now, if 
If Turkey did indeed agree to uh, make nice with Russia and cut off the flow of weapons and supplies over their southern border into Syria, to me that would be a very valid reason for the U.S. to all of a sudden take an interest and think, well, hmm, we have this parallel structure that could run the Turkish government just as well. Erdogan's making up with Russia. He's sealing the southern border. Maybe we need to act. Um, and it really comes down to this debate of, you know, did did Erdogan agree to basically switch sides in the Syrian war? It seems unfathomable. I mean, in many ways, it seemed previously like everyone else wanted to give up on the Syrian war except Erdogan. So it's really hard for us to think that he would be willing to switch sides. But apologizing to Russia for that shootdown when he had previously said he would never do it under any circumstances, no matter the cost to his country, to me seems significant. And then that really makes the timing of the coup very coincidental. Yeah, but this is not the first time that Erdogan backed up on his word, and uh, this is it's a common thing that he does. Uh, but I agree on two points um, that you that you mentioned. First of all, yes, this, when we try to see the great game or whatever you call it, grandiose um, outlay of things, um, these things like Crimea, for example, which I'm, I'm from, I'm, my family was from Crimea. They are Crimean Turks. Uh, right. And when you look at history, interesting fact: uh, before the First World War, there was a war in Crimea. Uh, between yeah. UK, Russia, the Western world, and Russia, and it was more. It played out more like a test. Uh, a, 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 uh, they wanted to see how their toys really interact with each other before yeah. the First World War. So this area is has always been the center of uh, all these conflicts, and 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 uh, where great powers come there and play, and yeah, whatever. Uh, but but yeah, we have to look at it in that perspective. I can see your point, but I don't think that such a coup from um, U.S. perspective is valid anymore. I don't think, as it worked in the 60s and 80s and 70s, it would work the same way and reshape the political structure in the same way as it did. Um, so I still think that this was uh, Erdogan was putting a lot of pressure on, on Gulenists. He was trying to get rid of them, and soon before the coup, there was going to be a, a meeting where he was going to, at, um, to he was going to put uh, generals and, and high-ranking military officials. Uh, Erdogan was going to put them into places that he wants, so get rid of some of them, replace them with uh, some people. So mainly these guys who are on the run at the moment, who, who can't be found, uh, they're, they're probably in Greece and run, trying to run away. Uh, these guys were one of some of the um, main guys that conducted the coup. So I still think it was done in pressure. That's why it was so dodgy, so uh, so badly um, orchestrated. Uh, but I can see your points, and it must be thinking about if the if the U.S. ships really um, U.S. airplanes really helped the uh, coup. Then yeah, there is there is we have proof that it was U.S. backed. There's a there's another way I guess of looking uh, at this, this great game, uh, moving away from a strategic uh, you know extraterritorial base, and um, moving to a kind of economic uh, and uh, trade ties and that kind of thing. There, this can be another explanation I guess you could probably tell us uh, for the for the reconciliation between Russia and Turkey. Or indeed the uh, the recent um, agreements between Israel and Turkey. Uh, I wonder what 
the trade relationship is. I, I know that, you know, a lot of a lot of Russian um, oligarchs spend their holidays in Turkey, mm-hmm. and uh, Israel and Turkey have had a, a very long uh, relationship. And out of this agreement, uh, Turkey will be able to invest in, in rebuilding Gaza, mm-hmm. I guess. But um, yeah, what is what is the kind of historical economic connections between these these countries? Well, first of all, we, we have to. Uh, remember that capital comes first. It's not yeah. the ideology or anything. It's capital that mainly pushes things around, right? Yeah. So, yes, Erdogan many times he said how much he hates Israel. Yeah. He he he's racist in that sense almost. He's, he doesn't even um, talk about the, the uh, government or the acts of killing. He really in, innately hates. And I would say the guy's an extremist uh, Muslim. But anyway. Uh, so, when, in fact, when we look at the coup, why it failed, we can see it from that perspective. That previous four coups in Turkey, they were all um, they, the aim was to restructure the capital movement, right? Uh, the, to reinstate their own, uh, in some sense, bourgeoisie or the, the way they uh, the capital accumulates. And the aim was that, and it succeeded. This time, it was uh, the the uh, main movement was uh, done because not because of capital because of other ideological pressures and it failed mm. so i would say these kind of coups as we have seen in, in latin american countries in many other countries if it is for the capital and uh, and uh, changing its movement then it, they usually succeed but when it is for such well feeble uh, ideologies like gulenist movements they tend to fail so yeah economic relations in that sense always comes first. So it doesn't matter how much uh, Erdogan hates apologizing or how much he, he's racist against certain people. He always goes after the capital, which accumulates mainly in the West when we think about it, in, in Israel and Russia. Mm. So his a- apology was almost inevitable uh, when, when the whole um, inflight of uh, money stopped and the, a crisis was emerging. Yeah, it, it, it just um, it, it, it carried around. Give give us a like example of some of the previous coups of what you mean by um, you know how it was like the the point of the coup was to restructure the capital flows. Well, at the moment I'm working on Argentina and the financial crisis, and I I'm, uh, started with looking at these coups that was in the 1960s and 70s, and all of them, uh, all of the generals that were involved in the coup became millionaires, right? And then they they created people who were close to them created new billionaires uh, through the coup. So, uh, so it, and the idea of the coup was to stop the leftist governments or, or uh, stop inflation. And it's, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, perspective, the, the focus was on the economy and how, it, how things are happening. Right. And when you do that, uh, but then you are backed by uh, powers like the US. Uh, when you mm. say that you are going to reinstate li- liberal uh, ideology, uh, then, then you kind of—it's easier to succeed. Look at Chile or Argentina, yeah. or, or yeah, these are all—all all of these coups ended with huge sovereign debts. For example, uh, one thing that happened in Argentina was uh, there was an influx of debt from IMF, and at the same time, this money never reached the country. It was—it uh, was inst- it was paid uh, to Citibank. Uh, in and uh, remains in uh, bank accounts of generals, so they were getting interest rates from this. While whole Argentinian people, Argentina people, they were paying for the interest rate that was borrowed in them. And here, I want to 
pull the topic of it to my project. Yeah, sure. yeah. But, but when you think about it, the concept of sovereign debt, it doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. Because a sovereign cannot owe anything. A sovereign, by its, by its basic definition, is something that decrees law and it mm. holds hold, itself above its own rules, right? So it says you, shall, you can't kill. But it kills. Yeah. Um, it, it says you can't take anyone else's property, but it regularly taxes you it's and takes it. It's a state of exception, isn't it? Yeah, it is yeah. always. It holds itself, and that's what it makes a sovereign. When we think about um, ISIS, for example, it, we, we talk about sovereignty problem, not because they, they are cutting people's heads off or they are terrorizing people, but because they started... In, um, uh, economic uh, arrangements between Russia and Turkey, they're buying, they're selling oil to Turkey, for example, and they mm. started issuing their own currency. So that is what that separates them from the rest of the terrorist organizations, I would say. So this, this power of uh, creating your own currency and, and holding above what its, uh, what its rules are is uh, in the nature of sovereign. So when sovereign owes, it's unnatural. It becomes a, so suddenly a problem. Because owing to someone or something, uh, owing anything to someone, uh, puts him above you in yeah. the sense that well, you are you can't pay this right away. Right? You have to meet his needs before yes. you meet your own. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the sovereign cannot pay is unnatural because it is the creator of uh, of money, currencies. It is what it gives value to money. So we have this shift in the idea of, of sovereign what it is and how it acts in since i would say 1970s and it changed its nature uh, radically in mm. in 2008 so i would say that there is a connection between this whole uh, problems that suddenly arose that suddenly emerged after 2008 these coup for example this coup for example is another um, thing that is related to the 2008 financial crisis and 2010 sovereign debt crisis so Today, for example, in Turkey, there are people in the streets still waiting, uh, and they are the, the ideas they are defending democracy. Now, democracy wasn't something you can you can hold and defend in the streets by singing uh, AKP songs. It wasn't like this, but it's changed its meaning. Mm. So, yeah, we are in in that sense we are in this age of where everything is meaningless, everything solid is melting into air in, in Marxist terms. Yeah. So yeah, we need to redefine everything. And I believe, as a, uh, I would define myself as a political economist, and I believe it's the economy, as again, it's the capital that uh, gives meaning to all these terms that we use, like sovereignty or, or uh, war or yeah, any other term, any other political term gains this meaning from the capital. Well, I, uh, as I was saying before off air, um, you know, I have no grounding in political theory whatsoever. Uh, but I know, well, I've watched a lot of movies and then also <laughs> I kind of know what feels right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm really interested in this idea of sovereignty because to me, um, it sounds like what you're talking about is that, you know, uh, when I think of sovereignties, I think of nationalism, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the idea that, um, you know, uh, the individual nation state um, should have the right to use its resource base to, like you say, issue its own currency. Um, and it can't be beholden to something larger than itself because it is the state. And, you know, um, previous world history for several centuries kind of revolved around this idea of sovereign states and their interaction with each other. But, um, you know, now, and I guess I get to put my conspiratorial hat on as well, um, we're moving into an era of, um, 
you know, global governance, or some would say global government. Um, and the uh, idea that these formerly sovereign bodies are now bound by these supranational structures where um, the decision-making is taken out of their hands, um, you know, be that... Uh, you know, agreements with the World Bank or the IMF or international trade agreements with various uh, legal um, penalties. Um, and that just makes me think a lot about this uh, geopolitics. The idea of maintaining a network of supranational bases allows you uh, more of a direct influence on the mood of the population and direct oversight over resources and commodities that would be the only basis of which some independent group could, uh, you know, seize that asset to allow themselves um, their own sort of economic sovereignty, a basis from which to make their own currency, uh, unfortunately, in the case of ISIS. Um, when you have a boogeyman like ISIS, it's easy to see uh, you know, how someone could make a justification of um, we need to have these bases all over the world to protect these global resources from menaces like ISIS. But uh, hearkening back to previous decades and when these supranational bases were used to suppress indigenous movements, uh, legitimate left-wing sovereignty, democratic movements, um, it's really a double-edged sword. And um, it's a lot more of a complicated picture than uh, you know, terrorists or protesters um, as a throwaway line. Um, I mean, that's kind of a, a long-winded statement, but I guess, you know, you guys would have some opinions on that as well, huh? Well, um, well yeah, the state, the idea of nation-states, mm. uh, I say it is it's a bad, it's, it's innately bad, I would say. It's an evil thing. But uh, that being said... When, when we look at the uh, Marxist literature or any of this um, uh, literature that's tried to reinstate uh, a new <coughs> government system, it was still a new governance. It was still, they, they talk about a state, so a strong state instead, a central uh, state. And this is real necessary. It's, uh, you can call it a necessary evil, but it is necessary that there is such a central thing. That's yeah, well, and, and, and to me, again, I've been thrown out of a lot of international socialist meetings in my day as well. And <laughs> it always seems to come back to, yeah, um, you know, the military-industrial complex and corporations are evil, but um, socialist states almost exclusively become authoritarian. Uh, the, the, when you uh, concentrate power in one uh, small area uh, group of people uh, or small area, let's say, yeah, it tends to happen. It is, in fact, a, a challenge for all leftists to try to understand how can we uh, create such a system, but and still remain the uh, liberal idea of uh, not liberal in the sense of monetarist, but liberal yeah. in the sense of uh, freedom. How can we retain it in this in this centralized uh, governance? And to be honest, when we look at post-World War II era, we can see the sparks of such a system. Uh, now, if you ask me, economy should be uh, in the service of ideology. So when, when you have an ideology and when you gain power, you apply this through economy, changing economy and doing things right in that area. Uh, and that's how you realize what you think, how you see the world. And this this happened in post-World War II until 1970s, if I can... Um, uh, that's my arguments in, in my thesis. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly it changed. Economy became the aim, the, the, the object, 
that is a fragile thing that you need to nurture it and you need to take care of it it's not something that gives you power that gives states power it is something that you need to defend so if if you make a mistake for example a policy mistake the suddenly inflation rises and unemployment rises and a crisis comes so it wasn't like this. Uh, economy was a power for the state. Inflation, for example, was a tool. It, many countries increased inflation on purpose so that their debt would be, uh, yeah, you know, it would weigh less on their on their economy. Uh, but we we see these changes. So nation state is becoming less powerful, which well should make us happy as lefties. But <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't because now we can see that people are suffering in in. in in exchange of this uh, shift of power. And the shift of power is not coming to people, it's, it's going to international financial institutions. Now, again, uh, if I may borrow your conspiracy hat, uh, this was done, uh, qu orchestrated quite masterfully since 1970s. By, uh, they reinstated, they, they installed these uh, economic theories that are basically nonsense. Uh, one example is Nairu, for example, non-accelerating inflation rate of uh, unemployment. And it says that a certain amount of people, a certain percentage of people should be unemployed for the inflation to be stable. Now, this is accepted uh, by many economists today. By IMF, it, they said it many times that they accept And this was applied in New Zealand's history yep. as well. Yep. Yep. Now, it was, in fact, in New Zealand was the first one that uh, targeted inflation. A test case, if you will, yep. on yep. a small population. On a small population, very, uh, they went to extreme, um, extreme means. So what they did was they unemployed millions of people, i.e. 10% of people, uh, and they thought this is the perfect uh, ratio. But th when you think about it, 10% of population unemployed, this means this, these 10%, there are many studies that show they, they, they will fall into alcoholism and depression, and yeah. they will, they will, their skills will start be, you know, deteriorating. But suddenly, for all, in, in, uh, even though we have all these proofs that it's a horrible thing, unemployment, we are here to produce, right, to interact with things, with objects, and, and reconstruct them, recreate them. And yet, it is accepted as a truth, as something that you don't even really consider anymore. I can give you many more examples of these uh, economic theories that change the economy into a fragile thing. It is, yeah, again, to... Um, well, and you can see how it becomes a circular argument, yep. because if um, the only point of ideology is to reinforce economy, um, you know, depending on which economic theory you use to measure the health of that economy, then your ideology is going to be driven one way or the other uh, in the service of maintaining those economic indicators. And um, I've never heard it really described so eloquently, but that's basically exactly what we see today is governments gaining reports on economic indicators and, uh, you know, pushing sort of physical and psychological levers of their populations to achieve those targets, uh, really losing sight of the whole reasoning behind those targets or the academic debate around why one, you know, indicator or another is good or bad. Yeah. Um, Your area of, of focus, as you mentioned before, is uh, debt crises and the financial interna international financial system. And I feel, uh, and probably people uh, in my kind of um, you know social group still feel a bit, a bit like the 2008 financial crisis is a bit of a mystery. And um, I'm not too clued up on the economic stuff, but I was thinking maybe you could, you know, <laughs> if you can ex explain it in in short uh, in short terms, um, what actually happened in 2008. Uh, I can't explain the technical part where the 
these big investment banks failed. Yeah. But what I can tell is what happened afterwards, because when these big investment banks and, and uh, other huge institutions that were too big to fail failed, mm. um, for some reason that I, well, they made bad investments mainly. Uh, but what happened next was state assumed their debt. So they said, well, we are going to pay for you. What this make, makes is it turns private debt into public debt. So we all assumed that we, right. we took it on. Yeah. And we were talking about how things don't make the sense that they used to make. And mm. this is another case where private debt is suddenly becoming public debt means that any private debt can become actually public debt. So we can't talk about this distinction anymore because it's interconnected now. It's it's intertwined. So what ha what happened next was we all became a part of the crisis. So it wasn't only Lehman Brothers that was fell falling apart, or only the U.S., but it was everyone else. Uh, what happened next? And this was a simple financial crisis. And today's with today's expertise and thousands of uh, economics PhD uh, yeah. holding guys, <laughs> yeah. we should be able to handle it. But yeah. what happened next was this: it became a, a sovereign debt crisis in 2010. And I, to be honest, with, with all brutally honest, I can't see the connection between the two. Uh, there shouldn't be any connection. It shouldn't turn into a Greek debt crisis because mm. Greece always had this much debt since uh, 1950s, 60s. Uh, so they accumulated this debt. Suddenly, it became a problem. So that's where I'm uh, trying. Why I'm trying to look at credit rating agencies. These were the institutions that said, "Why do you have this much debt? You need to pay it." Now, uh, as we were talking in the break. Uh, today's debt is not payable. It is uh, globally, we owe two hundred trillion yeah. dollars of debt. Yeah, and, and st student debt's a real problem, uh, yeah. not just here in New Zealand, but I guess uh, you know all over the uh, yeah. the the democratic world. Yeah, it's uh, in New Zealand it's fifteen billion dollars. Now we were talking mm. about this, and um, this is my calculation. But <laughs> this is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, bad. <laughs> well, if if all the students in Dunedin decided to pay this debt and this, they gathered with all their banknotes, hundred dollar bills, mm. not, not changed, hundred dollar bills, and decided to give it to uh, the government, they would need to hire twelve trucks. Uh, again, this is my calculations, but it would be so heavy that they can't carry this. They need to hire 12 trucks, fill it with $100 bills and send it to the government. So obviously this can't happen. In fact, there's hardly enough currency in the economy <laughs> circulating that. <laughs> exactly. That. Yeah. So this debt, this debt is not payable. Just like any other sovereign debt or private debt or credit um, card debt, we cannot pay this. Think about it, $200 trillion global debt. Who do we owe exactly? To Mars or another planet? How can a planet be indebted? Mm. So this is this is the main point that I would argue um, that separated us from the previous Keynesian era. Uh, as you know, Keynes's most well-known maxim was, was uh, in the long run, we are all dead. Yeah. So his, he, his idea, I would argue that um, this, this economy is a virtual thing. We shouldn't take it as a a real thing like um, our household uh, economy, mm. especially at the international level, it's just fictitious. In the long run, we're all dead. We cannot pay this and we won't. We don't have to. It, it becomes a problem when you ask people to pay it. So $15 billion of that is okay as long as you ask only for people to pay the interest rate and you keep it down, right? And um, what we saw in the um, previous civilizations, let's say, in, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, they always had this debt jubilee. Well, they, they cancelled all of that. Right. And they said, well, you don't owe anymore. Because otherwise it would cause serious problems mm. as they are causing it. They would, they would yeah. cause collapses as it is collapsing around us. <clears throat> so 
the, my my argument is this debt is not payable and we shouldn't pay it there is no need and the way and the the more we try to pay it the more it becomes a problem the, uh, when we try to pay it we actually decrease the amount of money in economy right so when greece tries to pay it there's less and less money which makes money more valuable but inflation or um, mm. well, uh, in Germany's case, devaluation, but it happens, and and there's less money to pay, money becomes more expensive, and th- this is a vicious circle. So stop trying to pay. I, I would <laughs> say to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I liked the uh, comparison you made before. I think it was off air. I'm not too sure um, between coups and the IMF demanding uh, debt. So I thought that was good because, I mean, you know, we we look at Greece. And um, it seems like, you know, the world's oldest democracy, as they call it, uh, it's debatable, um, was collapsing because of of this uh, of a debt crisis. Um, but uh, as I was as I was telling you uh, uh, off air, um, in in my study, I've been really interested in in this new world that we've been talking about, um, more from a kind of uh, the cultural end of neoliberalism and stuff, but uh, anyway, I've been interested in how authoritarian states deal with this. We've seen, you know, on the democratic, uh, on the side of democracy, we've seen democracy um, eroding in some places or, or getting skewed. But how do authoritarian states uh, function in this in this new financial area? They are much. They are doing much better. I would say. In fact, uh, there is a necessary shift to authoritarianism. Uh, let's look at Greece, for example. They uh, in 2014 or 13, uh, they had this. That um, uh, they elected a new government and then they held referendums, and they were all in favor of um, separating from the EU, mm. not paying the debt, and all of that. So people said, "We want this," and it didn't happen. It doesn't matter what you vote. Doesn't matter what people say. Which um, there are more examples of this uh, that are coming. Yeah. Uh, what happens is what the bankers want, the northern bankers say. And in fact, uh, a, a high-ranking official of ECB, the European um, European Bank, it's called, uh, said that to uh, Greek people, it doesn't matter what you do, what you say. This is this is what's going to happen, and it did, right? So we don't have power. So um, and when we look at countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, China. They are doing much better than so-called democracies today, which are already eroding. So, yeah, um, your interest in this, uh, how authoritarian regimes functioning, mm. I would say you will see more and more examples yeah. coming up as very successful capitalist economies. Uh, again, Indonesia, for example, is the growth rate is increasing as authoritarianism is increasing. So don't ask people what they think. Do what's best for economy and it will work. Right. Well, thanks for coming in today, um, John. Um, it's it's been a pleasure to have you. I I think we'll probably maybe have you again uh, <laughs> later down the track. Uh, and good luck with your with your study. Thank you very much. And yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs>